Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about adoption. Um, and we are talking about adoption in one episode, one podcast episode, <laughs> not ten podcast episodes, um, which we could... Because adoption is a massive, massive topic. Oh, yeah. And there's no way that we can possibly cover it comprehensively, all aspects of it, um, in a single episode. Um, and plus, the motivations and experiences and impacts of adoption on both adoptive families and adopted children are so complex and, and far more complex than pop cultural stereotyping and outright stigmas suggest. And because of the scope and sensitivity of all of these issues, we are narrowing in our focus. We're not really going to take a lot of time to look at all of the stigma surrounding adoption, in fact. Yeah, we're going to focus more today on what domestic and international adoption history and practices teach us about our cultural definitions of nationality, family and relationships. And of course, there will be dashes of racism and sexism and imperialism and war thrown in for good measure. Well, what a bummer that that has to be. And of course, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the geopolitics of adoption is uh, something that I was largely unaware of. Um, there are so many aspects of adoption um, that I was unaware of before diving into research for this podcast. And to be completely honest, the landscape is so broad, I wasn't even sure quite where to start for this episode because I knew that I didn't want to try to speak on behalf of uh, the adoptive community um, because I have no direct link to that. Um, but I also knew that there are issues tied up in this that everyone can relate to, that touch our lives in one way or another. And this particular episode angle, looking more at these geopolitics, was inspired directly by a Q&A over at the Toast between Nicole Chung and Arissa Oh, who's the author of the book To Save the Children of Korea, The Cold War Origins of International Adoption. Yeah, and, and right off the bat, here is an issue I was not aware of as it comes to adoption. Um, I was not aware of the links between uh, what was going on at the time of the Cold War and what was happening overseas with the rise in American adoption of foreign infants. And Nicole asks Arissa why it's so important for us to understand the history of intercountry or foreign adoption at all in the first place. Like, you know, this is a thing we do. Why? What's the point in understanding the history? And Arissa points out that, you know, we think of adoption, uh, intercountry adoption, as being a personal and private thing. Here are the parents here is the child and, you know, here's the agency or organization that's facilitating the adoption. But she talks about how, well, actually, in reality, intercountry adoption is an extremely public act. And they're influenced, she says, by large forces like national laws, ideas about race, gender, family, geopolitics. And she says, in turn, because of all these things, 
Adoption is and has been used in the public sphere to signify certain things like America's goodness or anti-racism. And this is definitely a point that we will revisit later in the podcast, but it kind of goes to this issue of at the time that you see adoptions rising from places like South Korea, you also see Jim Crow lynchings, these terrible racist environments happening here in the United States and adopting infants from overseas, particularly infants who are not white, has often, well, A, it's been very visible because, okay, that child does not look like you, white parents who adopted it. Um, but it's also and traditionally has been a way of saying, like, see, we are not racist. We are good hearted people who want to save children. And the we in that case is not we're not talking speaking to the individual parents involved in all of this. A lot of these individual parents just really want to parent these children. This is more speaking in uh, the political and even symbolic sense and, and how it relates to geopolitics. And um, Nicole Chung, we should mention, uh, of The Toast, was especially interested in talking to O because she herself uh, was adopted by American parents uh, from Korea. And O goes on to say that looking at intercountry adoption helps us understand how the micro and macro, private and public, shape each other. Because we have to ask these questions about uh, what you were speaking to, Caroline, of why mainly white Americans adopt non-white children from, from other countries, uh, the role the U.S. plays in perpetuating the kinds of global conditions that have fostered a lot of the the orphans and the situations they're living in abroad and and also why Americans adopt from some countries but not others um so we figured that this was uh, an angle of adoption that all of us have something to learn from, both about our personal definitions of what a family means and what a family can be and look like, but also how that is related to our overall sense of patriotism and nationalism. Um, and this obviously will uh, sort of flow into more of a focus on international adoption, but our international adoption policies in the United States are uh, very importantly predicated on particular trends in our domestic adoption patterns. So before we dive into more of the history, let's toss out some facts and stats, starting just with the definition of orphan, because... I think when we think of adoption, typically we might imagine more of uh, an Annie, the musical situation where you have an orphan who has no parents or relatives to speak of living in uh, deplorable conditions, um, perhaps with an alcoholic Carol Burnett. We don't know. Um, God, I would love to live with Carol Burnett, alcoholic <laughs> or no. Um, but that is rarely the case. Yeah, I mean, so that that is definitely one definition, right? Uh, you don't have any parents anymore. Maybe they've died, disappeared, uh, deserted. Um, but there's also a definition, according to U.S. immigration law, that the child has a sole or surviving parent who is unable to care for the child, uh, consistent with the local standards of the foreign sending country who has, in writing, irrevocably released the child for immigration and adoption. All of this sounds pretty straightforward. As we will revisit later in the show, 
it is anything but straightforward. Um, so if we look at numbers, UNICEF estimates that the orphan population in sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean in 2005 was more than 132 million. And only 13 million of those had lost both parents, meaning that in the legal language, they were a double orphan. The other millions and millions of these children were so-called single orphans. So they had still um, they still had a parent or an extended family around them. Um, and according to the U.S. Children's Bureau in 2013, there were 101,000 or more American children in the public foster care system waiting for adoption. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that they uh, that that their parents are deceased or disappeared or that they have uh, no other relatives around. Um, it has more to do with the availability of a caregiver for that child. Um, and if we look a little bit more into domestic adoption, I was surprised to learn from the U.S. Children's Bureau that we don't know precisely how many adoptions take place within the U.S. each year because there is no federal clearinghouse that collects all of that data. Yeah, I can't believe I I couldn't believe that. Well, it's because there are so many different sources right. of adoption. Um, in 2012, there were around 111,000 domestic adoptions in the U.S. And by the way, uh, girls are a bit likelier to be adopted compared to boys. And half, though, of all the adoptions in the U.S. are facilitated through a public agency like the foster care system. So those numbers we've got. We can totally track all of that. But once we get into the other half outside the child welfare system, it's harder to keep tabs on private adoption agencies, independent adoptions that might be conducted without any agency whatsoever, um, adoptions by st- Step parents, grandparents, etc. There are just a lot of different adoptive arrangements that can happen. But and listeners, please write us. But there's there's so there's no overarching like I'm going to report this to this agency that this is happening for for all of these different avenues of adoption that seems crazy to me well i'm sure that there is uh, that there are specific steps that you have to go through legally in order to legally adopt someone well, sure but uh according to the u.s children's bureau they cannot tell you for certain they can estimate they can give you a pretty close estimate um but they cannot tell you down to the child how many are happening um when we move into international or intercountry adoptions, as they're also called, uh, the U.S. government considers this a private undertaking, but that doesn't mean that you're doing it all on their own. It's sort of an interesting, like, we're going to, like, check in with you, but if something happens, you're kind of on your own. It seems like um, uh, people listening who have uh, gone through intercountry adoptions would love to hear from you about this because um, the government's classification of it as a private thing makes it sound so much simpler than it sounds because you're in reality going to be dealing with the State Department and the Department of Homeland Security because you have to certify a child's immigration status. You also have to obtain a visa for the child to enter the U.S. And beyond that, they will provide education and resources on ethical adoption procedures um, because 
it can get very dicey very quickly. Um, but another thing I was really surprised to learn when it comes to intercountry adoption is that they have declined dramatically since the 90s. Oh, yeah. So intercountry adoption actually peaked in 2004 at about 23,000 children. Uh, by 2015, that had plummeted to uh, about 5,600 or less than 7% of all U.S. adoptions. And in 2013, the top five uh, countries where we adopted children from here in the U.S. were China, Ethiopia, Russia, South Korea, and Ukraine. But of course, by 2015, Russia was no longer on that list because they flexed their geopolitical muscles and said no more U.S. citizens adopting Russian children. And also keep these most recent rankings in mind because it will tie a lot into where this conversation is going to go in terms of uh, how those rankings are influenced by, again, geopolitics. Give me a dollar for every time I say that word, Caroline. Please, this episode, so I can buy some Christmas presents. <laughs> um, and the reason why, though, there's been such a stark drop-off is due to things like, yeah, Vladimir Putin being like, you know what, I'm going to cut off... Um, Russian adoptions to the U.S. because we're strong. We don't need y'all. And it's sort of it was in that case, it was retaliation for sanctions. Yes. Um, So you have these tightening regulations um, around just adoptions in general and also moratoriums on foreign adoptions uh, like the kind that we've seen happen in Russia. And also, you know, this perception more broadly of international adoption being more of and I hate to put I hate to use this terminology and this is not mine. Okay, more of a necessary evil than humanitarian good. Yeah, viewing it as a last resort of allowing our children from whatever country to be adopted out to the United States rather than being able to keep the children here. And I mean, you know, contributing to this, too, is that you have NGOs, for instance, working to keep kids in their extended families and communities rather than having children who are in orphanages, even temporarily, who are illegally adopted out. Um, and you also... um like, you know, Krista mentioned regulations have been tightened. You have a lot of unethical practices in certain countries being clamped down on. But even with all of those changes that have been made, a, a lot of which to the benefit of these children, um, most children who are adopted internationally do find homes in the U.S. But of course, adoption is a lot more complicated than just those raw numbers and data from the U.S. State Department and elsewhere. Um, in fact, the more we learned, the more, in fact, the more we learned, the clearer it became how unclear uh, America's adoption history is. I mean, this stuff is straight up complicated, and it's complicated by a lot of discrimination um, and a lot of social stigmatizing. And I cannot recommend enough uh, the University of Oregon's Adoption History Project. They have a terrific, comprehensive website detailing the history of American adoption. And, I mean, just, just stepping out for a second now um, to 
take stock of where we're about to dive into. You can imagine adoption in the U.S., the issue of adoption, okay, as being at the center of a giant Venn diagram of social taboos. Because race and ethnicity aside, which will certainly come up, consider just how many core issues related to adoption remain taboo even today. Things like premarital sex, which was uh, not so long ago just considered female sexual delinquency, teen pregnancy, children born out of wedlock, single motherhood, infertility. Uh, There's also a very clear gender theme along these lines in terms of who the target of discrimination usually is. Yeah, and not to mention the issue and the question of what even constitutes a family, which remains a really polarizing political question, especially when issues of race and even religion come into it. Well, an LGBTQ status. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so we're going to dive into a bit of a timeline and history of adoption in this country when we come right back from a quick break. doing when we dive into the history of adoption in the United States is just sort of sifting through a pile of garbage, it feels like, in order to get to what we would like to think is really the main motivation of all of it. It's just, you know, providing children with homes they need, you know, providing people who really want to be parents with the opportunity to do so. Uh, But again, It's complicated, although it didn't really start so complicated. Uh, In 1851, Massachusetts passed America's first adoption legislation called the Adoption of Children Act, which, two thumbs up, was focused on the welfare of the child rather than the welfare of the adult. Yeah, children need stable homes, loving parents, a safe environment. That's great. But we didn't really have it all figured out, especially as America, the melting pot, uh, really began to take shape. Um, it would take us a century to really start figuring stuff out like, you know, maybe shipping immigrant children off on so-called orphan trains from the East Coast out to the West isn't the best path to assimilation. <laughs> and um, quick side note. I was in a ballet in late middle school, uh-huh. The Orphan Train, which was based around this chapter of American history from 1854 to 1929, when around 250,000 kids, Catholic and Jewish particularly, immigrants, yes, mm-hmm. uh, were shipped out away from their parents. I mean, orphan, they were rarely orphans in the sense of not having parents around. Many of them had both parents. They were just poor. Right. Um, they were sent on these orphan trains out to uh, the Midwest and beyond to serve as sort of uh, farm labor, free labor for, for a lot of folks out well, there. Yeah, and I mean, they were sent to so-called worthy Protestant families to help again assimilate these children into an american way of life supposedly and um the reading that we were doing on this from the university of oregon pointed out that a lot of these kids actually made their way back home one way or another maybe their parents came and got them or 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 whatever but um yeah this this is horrifying thousands of children they're like uh it's better for you to be separated from your family and grow up with someone else than to grow up 
a Jewish or Catholic immigrant in a big city. Well, and the big city aspect was a main motivator of this. You know, this is around the time when we first start seeing the development of like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts and summer camps, because there was a lot of concern about the negative developmental impacts of the urban environment on kids. So that's another reason why they were sent to the great outdoors out west, like give them some fresh air and sunshine and some Good old-fashioned American apple pie. (laughs) Um, But while this is happening, you also have baby farming, which was uh, America's old-school baby black market, um, where commercial maternity homes would bring women in, usually low-income women who are pregnant and could not care for a child um, for, for whatever reason. They would be paid barely anything um, to have their baby delivered. And then immediately that baby would be sold for a real good bargain, again, often to like agricultural families who there was a quote from uh, one farmer who had bought a baby um, who said, you know what? I bought this like farm new farmhand essentially for a hundred dollars. It's like that's quite a deal. Um so fi- finally, around 1920, we had our first children's welfare organizations and bureaus starting to step in and, and crack down on that. Um, but it doesn't even end there. I learned a whole new term, a whole new era, Caroline. Oh, yeah? The baby scoop era. Ooh, is that like Baskin Robbins? Oh, 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 if only it were that delightful. Um, so... Adoption reformers have termed uh, the period from 1945 to 1972 in the United States the baby scoop era. And it's notable that it starts right after World War II during the so-called baby boom um, and ends with Roe v. Wade. Uh, And the baby scoop era is a term to denote this period when at least one and a half million unwed mothers in the U.S. were forcibly and secretly sent to maternity homes to have their babies and never speak of it again. And when they would be shipped off to these places a lot of times, um, if they were poorer, they might be installed as like a temporary servant in a wealthier person's home until they could deliver their baby, sort of like earning their keep. Um, but regardless, at a lot of these maternity homes, you could not take any of your clothes. You would only be known by your initials. Like, it, they really wanted to... It sounds like a Black Mirror episode, honestly. Um, it You were supposed to pretend as if this is... You were someone else... And this just never happened to you. And regardless of whether you maybe wanted to raise that baby or not, um, you would be forced to sign it away. Now, I mean, race enters this conversation, too, because the thing is, it's not like black unwed mothers were facing the same sort of pressure um, because of racist assumptions about how natural their promiscuity was. And also that their babies were considered less desirable to adopt in this country. Which, again, unfortunately, is a theme that will recur throughout the rest of this podcast. Um, and, and that snippet is coming from Catherine Joyce's book, The Child Catchers, Rescue, Trafficking, and the New Gospel of Adoption. 
But really, the most controversial adoption concept of all in the United States, even to this day, is the idea that parents and children don't have to match skin color in order to build a happy, healthy family, which leads us to the desegregation, essentially, of American adoption, although in fits and starts. Yeah. And I mean, this is what's called transracial adoption. And the first recorded adoption of a black child by a white family in the United States happened in 1948 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 1948. Yeah. It took that long. Well, yeah, for the first recorded adoption uh, to happen. Because there was just this overarching idea that, well, A, white families wouldn't want a black or brown child, but B, um, that it was better for everyone if A, adoption wasn't spoken of, and B, that you matched your family. There was there was this big issue of matching that had always been the preference. Yeah, and, and matching really being short for race matching, which is really a euphemism for segregation. Um, but this is not an antiquated notion by any means. There are uh, still people within the social work field today who um, do believe that uh, matching children with their respective ethnicities and cultures is best for that child's development, which relates back to our conversation just a second ago about um, NGOs who really advocate for um, investing in developing countries in order to keep children there rather than adopting them out Mm -hmm. to the United States. Um, But there is undeniable racism that's going on in, you know, sort of break, breaking that that color line in American adoption uh, because African-Americans were considered classified as special needs and, quote, hard to place adoptees and were outright denied services even in some states. Uh, so by 1948, the U.S. Children's Bureau realized that they had 50,000 black children who were in need of adoption. And even today, there are more black children awaiting adoption in the U.S. than white children. So when agencies are seeing this discrepancy by the 1950s, some agencies and some individual private couples started exploring transracial adoption arrangements. And we start seeing campaigns to increase African-American adoptions. And they were marginally effective. Uh, they reached an all-time high of 2,574 in one year, and that amounted to about 12,000 adoptees total. And even though uh, white people at the time would be considered extremely progressive for even considering adopting a black child at the time, if you look at the campaigns, these campaigns that were uh, going on trying to promote this idea, uh, it, it, it's clear that, no, we are, we are not all that progressive. Um, take, for example, one from the Boys and Girls Aid Society of Oregon, which was called Operation Brown Baby. Uh, That's honestly not surprising to me at all, because Oregon was founded or whatever you say a state is, was started just for white people. It was illegal for black people to go to Oregon or be or live in Oregon. So but the number of African-American children being adopted by 
white couples plummeted starting around 1972 because this is when the National Association of Black Social Workers took a direct and very vocal stand against black children being placed with white parents. They basically said black children in white homes are cut off from the healthy development of themselves as black people. And you really just see the numbers plummet. They fall. They fell through the floor to zero. Yeah. I mean, and it's not like, you know, their peak of almost 2600 was like huge, hugely high. I mean, that that also just goes to show the resistance, this total fear of uh, a white family adopting a black child. And why aren't we talking about the flip side of that, of, say, a black family adopting a white child? Oh, well, Caroline, that's because it just was unheard of. Like, seriously, like, that would not happen. Because if it were to, that family would likely be the target of protests and potentially violence. Um, there was a situation in 1904, I believe, in New Mexico, where a Mexican-American family adopted one, maybe two white children and wanted to bring them into into their family. And the white people in the surrounding community were so outraged by it that a violent mob showed up at their house and they forcibly removed the white children from that home. But we should note that there were a few times, a few really distinct times, when white Americans suddenly weren't so skittish about desegregated parenting. And we're going to get into that when we come right back from a quick break. So starting with World War II, you can reliably track the rate of America's uh, intercountry or international adoptions with uh, the amount of military warfare happening and also later on with natural disasters. And we really start seeing this post-World War II. Yeah, I mean, post-World War II, you've got soldiers and journalists coming home talking about how widespread the issue of um, parentless Poor parentless children is. Yeah, war orphans. Hello, war is the worst for women and children. This goes back to our episode on uh, Japan's quote unquote comfort women from World War II. And if you haven't listened to that episode, um, that was the name given to Korean women in particular who were uh, forced by Japanese by the Japanese military into sex work to service both uh, their servicemen and also American servicemen, even after World War II. Yeah. Um, and along those same lines, really, wherever you find servicemen stationed uh, mid or post prolonged military conflict, you're going to find their out-of-wedlock babies. Um, this is also a callback to our episode on uh, Asian exoticism. Um, and soon enough, in the wake of World War II, international adoption becomes humanitarian and benevolent, not a desperate move for, say, a woman who simply can't conceive and is therefore less 
of a woman in American culture's eyes at the time. Yeah, and I mean, America's first wave of international adoptions are initiated in this period, after World War II. Uh, American military families who were stationed abroad, who wanted to care for children orphaned in the war, were on the front lines, so to speak, of these international uh, or transracial adoptions. Um, and then slowly it became known among the American public, really gaining steam when those soldiers and journalists returned home with stories about all of these European and Asian orphans. And, and like Kristen said, it became part of not only we as individual parents want to care for these children, we want to be parents and give these children a safe, loving home, but also on a larger, more nationalism-related scale of look at what good humanitarians we are here in the United States. Now, if we're talking about baby ranking, um, West German babies were adopted first among these service members and their families because why? They're white. They're white. Uh, more than 66,000 babies of Allied soldiers born to West German women in the decade after World War II there were more than 66,000 babies of Allied soldiers born to West German women. Um, but the thing is, there weren't just white men fathering children with white German women. There were black soldiers as well. And the children that these German women had by black soldiers, black American soldiers, were considered pariahs. Nobody wanted them. And hundreds ended up being sent to the United States to be adopted by black families. So even families in the United States who were adopting children from other countries still were not willing to accept, by and large, children who were half black and half white. And while we see the supply of adoptive babies rise in the wake of World War II, we also see on the home front in the United States the demand go up as well because we have sort of the return to a traditional femininity. You have the more the rise of the Betty Draper era where women are expected to leave their jobs if they had taken one during the war. And oh, yeah. And I'm talking about white women here, of course. Um, white women uh, go home, have your babies and, uh, you know, cook dinner for your your vet when he comes home. And uh, that put a lot of pressure on women to fulfill that identity. And if they could not, because infertility uh, is a very common thing, you start to see the American side demand for adoption starting to meet more of that supply side. And uh, when it comes so to desegregating parenting, the first time we really witness white American families in growing numbers choose to adopt a child of a different ethnicity. Uh, it, it is not going to happen with an African-American baby. No, 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 no. It's going to happen with children of color from overseas. And this concept becomes popularized uh, really with the best-selling memoir that came out in 1954 called The Family That Nobody Wanted. And it was all about the Doss family, who were nicknamed the United Nations family. And starting in 1945, in that first wave, post-World War II, they eventually adopt 11 children from outside the U.S., including Filipino, Hawaiian, Balinese, um, Malayan, Indian, Mexican, and Native American children. But not a single African-American child, mind you. Yeah, because they tried to adopt Gretchen, 
who was half African-American and half German, but they faced so much pushback from not only their family, but also their community that they ended up placing tiny Gretchen with an African-American family. And I believe Mrs. Doss's quote was something along the lines of her toast brown skin matched her new families perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. And and Mrs. Doss was one of those women who wanted to have a big family, do her patriotic post-war duty and and have that family. Uh, But after her first childbirth, I believe, she had difficulty getting pregnant a second time. And since uh, the supply of white babies was so low, they were really hard to come by. And they were like, well, I guess I guess we'll look into maybe this intercountry adoption, um, with the exception, of course, of a Native American adoption, which we are going to touch on in just a second. Um, but it isn't until after the Korean War, that we really start to see more of the modern era of intercountry adoption. Because the Korean War takes place from 1950 to 1953 and leaves in its wake 100,000 war orphans, including an estimated 1,500 so-called GI babies, um, although estimates at the time were far higher. And the South Korean government had no interest in keeping especially those GI babies around. They did not fit in. It was, you know, a sign of uh, essentially um, imperialism, you know, Americans coming in. Um, and as a result, South Korea becomes the first nation in the world to streamline intercountry adoption. Yeah. And I mean, that was incredibly appealing to white American adoptive parents, because, first of all, uh, many of these babies that were left behind were a mix of Korean and white. Um, if they were Korean children with black fathers, they were usually placed with black parents. Um, but even if they adopted a Korean child, these white parents in America, Still, there's issues of of race there because, oh, well, you know, this is a full-blooded Korean baby, but at least it's not black. Uh, There were also fears about, you know, birth parents or relatives or extended family popping back up that were eased simply by virtue of the fact that you are so far away from South Korea when you're in average town America. Um, And... Contributing to this from the other side was that mixed race children really were not wanted in Korea, where pure bloodlines were sort of part of the emerging South Korean nationalism after both the Japanese occupation and then a civil war. And even today, there's a stigma around adoption in South Korea, even if the baby isn't mixed race. But at the same time, there's still stigma around a single mom keeping and raising her baby and few, if any, governmental supports. So there's a- uh, that sounds pretty familiar as an American sitting here. Yeah, but so whereas today there's this effort to have more in-country adoptions, having South Korean parents adopt South Korean infants, there are still all of these complicating factors, including social stigma, that make it difficult. Yeah, I mean, right now South Korea exclusively prioritizes. Um, 
intra-country adoptions wanting to keep South Korean babies in South Korea. And in fact, uh, I wasn't able to find confirmation of whether this went through, but in an older article we were reading, South Korea had declared that it would put a moratorium on inter-country adoptions, especially to the U.S., by 2012. And so between 1953 and 1962, Americans were adopting Americans had adopted 15,000 foreign children. And there are a couple of names that pop out during this era. So in 1955, you have evangelical Oregon couple Harry and Bertha Holt, who actually obtained a congressional order in order to adopt eight Korean orphans. And the couple would go on to form the Holt International Children's Services, which specialized in international adoption. And it's worth noting here that the Christian religious community in the United States is huge when it comes to international adoptions. Oh, right after World War II, as early as 1945, Lutherans, Catholic services, you know, even evangelical groups, they were the first ones who were getting involved with facilitating intercountry um, adoptions. But the uh, the angle they were coming from did have a humanitarian edge to it, but certainly um, a religious edge to it as well. Yeah, there was a bit of a, a missionary bent to a lot of those adoptions. Yeah, wanting to essentially like save their souls and raise them in Christian homes explicitly. Yeah. Um, Josephine Baker, yes, that Josephine Baker was not uh inspired by religious motivations when she adopted 12 children from all around the world um she called her children the rainbow tribe and of course this wasn't related directly to the korean war either she adopted 12 kids from finland venezuela japan france belgium all told 10 boys and two girls okay starting out that sounds great she's giving these kids a home. And she wants to show how we can have a racial utopia. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, look at all these kids from different backgrounds. That's fantastic. However, the the kink in all of this is that um, she, a lot of times, with a lot of these children, would make them act as though they were born in a certain country or with a certain religion and make them adhere to it. So, for instance, she adopted a French boy and gave him the name of Moses and told him and everyone who encountered him that he was Jewish and raised him to be Jewish. Um, obviously, there's nothing wrong with being Jewish. I'm just saying that some of her practices were a little questionable, especially when you take into account that she sold tickets for fans and visitors to watch her and her rainbow tribe hang out at her palatial estate in France. I mean, you, you could say, well, you know, she was... Like, she built her career on entertainment and singing and that famous banana skirt dance. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there, there's, like, there's this core of her that has really good intentions, but the execution, not so great. Um, but her humanitarian desire and her celebrity did make me wonder, Caroline, whether... Her rainbow tribe sort of imprinted uh, the humanitarian glow, whether uh, valid or not, onto today's trend of celebrity international adoptions. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we've still got a lot to get through. Um, like the Vietnam War. 
Yeah. Have you ever heard of Operation Baby Lift? I had not. Yeah, so um, I, wasn't there a Disney movie called like Operation Dumbo where they drop. airlift uh, Dumbo Drop? I think so. Okay, something about uh, an elephant being airlifted. Yes. All right, maybe questionable uh, from an animal rights perspective, but that that's one elephant and a Disney movie. What was not a Disney movie <laughs> was in 1975 in uh, Saigon when. The Vietnam War is shutting down. The American government is like, oh, you know what we need to do? Because we've really caused a mess. Uh, <laughs> one thing we could do is, I don't know, like airlift at least 2,000 Vietnamese children to the U.S. before troops withdraw. Um, another 1,500, in addition to that 2,000, would be airlifted and sent out to Canada, Europe, and Australia. And, oh, you could say that's questionable. That is so questionable. That uh, was just a touch of a disaster because <laughs> it turns out that a lot of those um, presumed Vietnamese orphans were not orphans at all. Um, Which, again, is nothing new or old in the realm of adoption. Well, yeah. Adoption. And that's also why at the top of the podcast, we wanted to uh, spell out the definition of an orphan according to U.S. immigration law. Um, this is part of why those standards were um, established because uh, when they started realizing from the children and also from very angry relatives of the children who were like, oh, cool, America, you come over here, you make a mess, and then you steal our kids on the way out. Yeah, not cool. Great, great. Um, and it was such a diplomatic disaster. And so this is why U.S. adoption policies, thankfully, began checking more rigorously as to whether kids are actually orphaned, um, whether that is um, single parent or dual parent orphaned, um, although that will come up again with Madonna. Stay yeah. tuned. Yeah, shocker. Um, but around this time, too, on the home front in 1978 in the United States, we have to pass the Indian Child Welfare Act because there had been sustained protest and activism against the practice of removing Native American children from their families and placing them with white families. About 700 of these kids were taken as part of the Indian Adoption Project managed by the Child Welfare League of America. And not surprisingly, protesters argued that this was a form of cultural Genocide, But as this was going on from 1958 to 1967, the leaders of the Child Welfare League thought that they were doing this extremely progressive and enlightened work of, hey, you know what, we're, you know, our nation is so uncomfortable with children of color, you know, being raised in white families. But look at us. We're now able to bring at least Native American children into white homes. White people. White people. What is wrong with you? <laughs> um, oh, God. So that, that's a that's a hard question to answer because it's just so much. Um, so it's understandable that um, that that certainly backfired as well. Um and this whole time, if we if we look at the 60s going all the way up to 1990, South Korea will remain the primary country of origin for children adopted by American families, all because 
in the wake of the Korean War, the government, I mean, made it what some people referred to as the Cadillac, I kid you not, the Cadillac of adoption. Um, they made it so systematized. I don't want to say easy because I doubt adoption is ever easy, but they made it streamlined and accessible. Um, and now we have to dig, though, into some geopolitics because during the Cold War, the U.S. government is totally cool with the roughly 150,000 babies who were adopted from South Korea because we are at Cold War with the USSR and we want to look as benevolent and peacemaking, oh, and also not quite as racist as all of the news happening due to the civil rights movement Um would make America appear. So it was like, hey, you know what? Let's, we, we're still not cool with white families adopting black babies, but hey, you know, if, if uh, you're an international child, you are welcome here. Um, so we do see at this time international adoptions increasing at a rate much higher than those so-called transracial adoptions in the U.S. Um, and getting back though to geopolitics, in the 1980s, you see an uptick in the number of American adoptions uh, in Central and South American countries, particularly El Salvador, Guatemala, and Mexico, because in the 1980s, you also have an uptick in civil wars and issues of poverty happening there. Yeah, and in the 90s, of course, the Cold War starts to thaw, and we then see an uptick in Romanian and Russian adoptions. But the New York Times in 1991 documented the underregulated Romanian so-called baby bazaar, which uh, Romania actually shuttered their international adoption program in 2001. I mean, just like scary, scary, scary stuff when it comes to the way that children were sent to the United States to be adopted. Um, and in 1993, the Hague Adoption Commission international agreement is drawn up uh, that basically establishes an adoption authority in every participating country. And in the meantime, uh, up to, I think it was 2006 when it was fully ratified, um, this whole time there have been super shady adoption operations identified in, like you said, Romania, uh, South Korea, Cambodia, Guatemala, Vietnam, and Nepal, to name just a few. Um, and on the flip side of that, Reuters investigative journalists discovered a spate of adoptive parents here in the U.S. putting out ads, like Craigslist ads, essentially, to rehome, in quotes, their adopted children. Yeah, particularly troubled kids. And often, as should come as no surprise, this led to issues of sexual and physical abuse for the children who were rehomed. But especially through... World War II through the end of the Cold War, um, adoption really becomes a form of diplomacy, American diplomacy. Um, not that uh, all of these adoptive parents were thinking that way, but in terms of the kinds of regulations and relationships and support that the U.S. government would provide for that, it was certainly motivated um, by wanting to make the U.S. look good. 
So if we come around full circle to what we were talking about at the top of the podcast about the adoption cliff, as it's been called, that plummet of international adoptions, um, why is that? I mean, you mentioned Putin uh, revoking adoption access uh, in response to sanctions imposed by the U.S., um, but there's more going on than just Russia. Yeah, China did it, too. Um, yeah, China wants to to flex its muscle to show that it's like a superpower and not this developing country where its children need to be sent off to the United States. Well, right, because China's had that one child policy for a long time. And now that that's been revoked, China's basically like, hey, no, we're, we're going to keep our kids. United States, get out of here. Um, so... You know, in 2004, Russian children were 25% of all intercountry adoptions to the United States that year. And, you know, so once they say, no more, we don't like your sanctions, you can't have our children, we're going to keep them. Um, a lot of American parents are going, okay, well, I still want to adopt, I still want to be a parent. Like, who, to whom can I provide a safe home? Well, a lot of parents then turn to Africa because you have far fewer countries in Africa that are committed to that Hague Adoption Commission International Agreement. Countries like Ethiopia, Uganda and Malawi. Um, in Ethiopia, Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo, you've got issues of poverty and limited social services and few adoption institutions, which basically amounts to having a very high number of adoptable children that are not under some of the same regulations that children in perhaps other European countries or Asian countries are. Uh, You also have parents going to, or not going to, but uh, communicating with countries that have undergone natural disasters, places like Haiti. But again, often these orphans, whether it's in these African countries that we just mentioned or in places like Haiti, Again, a lot of these orphans are not the so-called double orphans. They either have a parent still around or they have an extended family. And so a lot of times what you see, and this was horrifying to read about, but, you know, perhaps a family has fallen on hard times or cannot pay the bills. They might place their child or children in an orphanage temporarily so their children have care while they can get money together. Well, then some of those less reputable organizations or orphanages will end up placing out the children right from under their their parents or their grandparents or their family's noses. So the family comes back to say, okay, you know, thank you for caring for our child. We'd like to go home now. Well, the child isn't there. Well, and and also, too, a lot of children in uh, orphanages and similar institutions in developing countries are children with developmental disabilities. Um, and we should note that in terms of the shift toward Africa and um, recent sites of nat- natural disaster, that it's not like we have parents, you know, f- turning to them en masse. Because remember, um, as of 2013, I believe, you know, when we have barely 5,600 international adoptions taking place in the U.S., that represents only 7% of all of the adoptions happening by U.S. parents. So I'm saying this because international and intercountry adoption, especially if you want to adopt a baby, um, 
and a baby who has no physical or developmental disabilities, that is now becoming an issue of class and status because it's way more challenging because of supply and demand. It's way more challenging um, to adopt a baby baby, first of all, um, but a baby internationally um, due to all of the regulations that exist now that, again, are enforced uh, for the welfare of these children. And um, when I first started reading up for this podcast, Caroline, I uh, got stuck in a celebrity baby adoption um, sort of circle because I, I realized, you know, that you have uh, the scandal in 2009 when Madonna attempted to adopt her second baby from uh, Malawi and she was stopped. There were, was a complaint by the child's grandmother um, saying that there was a financial coercion going on. Uh, there was a similar situation with the first baby uh, that she adopted from Malawi. And that was really, I mean, the biggest news making its way into American, you know, headlines far and wide regarding international adoption probably since uh, the last war that we had. Um, now it seems like so much of our focus on intercountry adoptions is very celebrified mm-hmm. and celebrified specifically of, <laughs> you, you can see so, there's so many Google results for this of the basic question of like, why are all these white celebrities adopting black babies from Africa specifically? Yeah. I mean, Sandra Bullock also adopted two African-American children. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of concern. Not that like people shouldn't be able to adopt children of other races and ethnicities, but like, are you as a parent introducing your child to his or her culture of origin? You know, there was the concern back in the 70s of black children being adopted by white parents. And I think that that concern is obviously still valid and still stands of like, OK, if you adopt a black child or or what have you, you know, is this child going to be aware of its history of the the people who came before? Or are you just going to claim what so many white people do claim and say that you're totally colorblind and raise the child with no sense of identity, which can lead to a lot of problems when that child gets a little older and starts asking questions about his or her identity. Well, and the exact same thing can be said, too, for those tens of thousands of um, children who were also adopted from South Korea. I mean, any time you have, um, to use old school terminology, an unmatched um, family, there are rightfully so concerns over child development and cultural identity and national identity. And ultimately, it roots back to that question that still perplexes so many people, unfortunately, in my opinion, um, of, well, what should a family look like? And I mean, this this episode has certainly made clear some of the reasons why uh, that question has has plagued our culture for so long. Um, and there isn't a consensus, really, within the adoption community, uh, the adoption advocacy community at large as to what the absolute best thing to do is, especially when we're talking about say, uh, uh, Brangelina, RIP, Brangelina's, 
uh, sort of rainbow family a la Josephine Baker um, that they have formed with uh, adopted children from Cambodia and Vietnam and elsewhere, um, where you have some people saying, at the end of the day, it's going to be terrific for any child to grow up in Angelina Jolie's house versus pretty much any other house you could think of. But then you also have NGOs on the ground, UNICEF and Save the Children are two um, main ones who do see that as more of a last resort where it's like we have a crisis, yes, of 132 million orphans around the world who don't necessarily need adopting, okay, by white families, but who are indicative of all of these community resources that celebrities say could use their millions of dollars to build up. And and Madonna, for her part, like with the whole uh, Malawi scandal, you know, she did invest, I know, a lot of uh, a lot of money into that local community. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's really no easy answer to that. That's one thing that I that I picked up from a lot of what we read, and especially first person accounts of what we read, um, which is that there's there's no there doesn't seem to be a blanket answer. There is no panacea for all of these issues happening. But in the middle of all of this, as we're trying to figure it all out, you have children mm-hmm. who are relatively helpless in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, absolutely. And not just children born in countries outside the United States. Um, Once we got to almost the end of researching for this episode, I thought, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on. What about what about American babies that are then adopted out, so to speak? Oh, yeah, they do exist, (laughs) but they primarily uh, are from a very particular demographic. Yeah, there's a lot of black babies that get adopted specifically to Canada, the Netherlands, and Ireland. Those are the top three countries that adopt American children. Yeah, according to Joan Heifeser Hollinger with uh, the Berkeley Law School, around 500 infants are adopted out of the U.S. annually, quote, most of whom are black. And one major motivation that comes up a lot in stories about this is the opportunity to allow that child to grow up outside of American racism. Not to say that racism only exists in America, um, but you do have a birth mothers who say, you know, I, I want to give my child a, a better chance, not just financially, not just with domestic stability, but also when it comes to race. So that says a lot. And um, Canada, you are the number one adoptive country for American babies. Uh, so I say thanks because, you know, we love Canada. Yeah, we do. Um, okay. Yeah, we do. So listeners, we have covered a lot of territory. And there have probably been a lot of generalizations caught up in that, in us wanting to offer um, this snapshot for you. And uh, I do want to reiterate that, a lot of what we're talking about is more of the high-level geopolitical um, and, and diplomatic aspects of adoption. Um, and we by no means are, are trying to impugn adoptive families, um, but rather to highlight all of all of the reasons why uh, it remains 
such a complicated issue. And I would like to hear from our adopted listeners if you do struggle with some of these identity issues that we brought up. And parents, we also want to hear from you. What have your experiences been going through the process and also going through people's reactions to it? We have we've got a lot of baggage and, and stigma and stereotyping when it comes to the even just the mere concept of adoption. And to me, it is time for those taboos to and um, so share with us momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. All right. I have a letter here from Star Sminty listener Stephanie in response to our Bury Your Gaze trope episode. She says, I'm friends with many queer women who write about TV and or are heavily invested in the fandoms, and I cannot emphasize how much 2016 has gutted us, especially earlier this year as it seemed every show we loved kept killing us off. The 100, which, uh, thank you, she corrected our pronunciation from the 100 to the 100. Uh, the Walking Dead, Person of Interest, Jane the Virgin, Orange is the New Black, etc., etc., My expectations for queer women characters have gotten to the point where if someone is revealed to be attracted to women, I start a mental countdown for them and start to emotionally pull away because it's only a matter of time. For example, when I started House of Cards over the summer, I started liking Rachel, but when her storyline had her becoming closer to a new female friend, I actually started saying, Oh God, don't kiss her, Rachel. No, you're going to die now. It's weird when you get used to desperately wanting representation on TV, but now you dread it because you know they're probably going to die, and die in a really random, nonsensical way. But I did want to share some TV shows that are a bright, shining light on the dead lesbian or bisexual landscape of 2016. If you're interested in TV shows that feature badass, multidimensional women characters and queer women characters that are not just love interests that die or disappear and are never seen again, two shows I recommend are Winona Earp and Supergirl. Winona Earp was actually revolutionary for me as it had a very purposeful meet-cute for its two characters. This was not a vague, oh, she's just being friendly meeting, but established romantic interest from the start. Supergirl's recent coming out storyline of Supergirl's older sister, Alex Danvers, is also fantastic and beautifully portrays the story of an older 20 or 30 something year old woman realizing that she's gay, which is not something we often see. Hope this email wasn't too long, but as Caroline said, I have a lot of nerd rage from 2016. Thanks again for the wonderful podcast and all you guys do. And thank you, Stephanie. And I've got a letter here from Priscilla about our Barrier Gays episode. And Priscilla writes, There is something about the history of the dead lesbian trope that I thought you guys might be interested in knowing. That trope goes much older than TV and seems to have originated with lesbian pulp novels. In order for those novels to be published, the authors had to give all lesbian characters a bad ending, like death, losing their minds, or ending up with a guy. Most of those novels were written by queer women, which is really troubling. It's a part of the history that, for whatever reason, tends to be left behind on the barrier gaze conversation. On another note, I'll start by saying that this is my personal opinion. I consider any queer character, regardless of the motivation or story justification, to be in the trope. With the low amount of queer characters in the media and the negative portrayals and the history, we're still not at a point where the death of a queer character doesn't hurt the community. Pousset's death, specifically, completely fits in the trope, especially because of the low number of queer women of color on TV and in most media right now. 
Well, thank you for filling us in on that, Priscilla. And thanks to everyone who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And Caroline, where else can people find you? Well, I'm over at Twitter at the Caroline Irv, and you can also bug me on my personal website, CarolineIrvin.co, cause I'm too cool for the M. You can also find me on Twitter at Kristen Conger. And if you head over to tinyletter.com slash Kristen, which is C-R-I-S-T-E-N, it's often misspelled. Y'all understand. Uh, you can sign up for a newsletter that I've started called the Do Better Dispatch. And if you'd like to follow Stuff Mom Never Told You, social media, watch all of our videos, read our blogs, and listen to all of our podcasts with our sources so you can follow along. There's just one place for that, and it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 